Welcome, and thank you for listening to the New Day Podcast. We are located in South Kansas City, proclaiming the good news of God's grace to our region and abroad. If you'd like more information, please visit our website, newdaykc.org. First of all, the true is, a, I should have used an adjective there, the true enemy of our faith. I started to introduce that last week, what it is. And then the second part of Romans 4 that, that Paul wanted us to get is how we have a tendency, and Romans 4 lays that open, we make our Christianity hard. Faith. We, we make faith hard to do because we add stuff to it that's not there. Or we misstep and we don't put everything in there that should be and don't do it in the right way. And then the third thing we want to get out of this is the faithfulness of God and his character through justification. Justification is such a big word. It means right standing. And we were looking at it as we explored Romans 3, uh, 21 through 26. And I, I, I found that... Uh, how many of you are charismatic in your background in church? So uh, the charismatic church actually didn't teach real strongly on these things, if you came from that background. Uh, some of you are laughing. Uh, they didn't teach. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't know what it was in the church age, but we got kind of blasted where we thought it would be better if we just lived in experiential things, and we didn't get taught necessarily foundations of faith and what theology was, what doctrine is, uh, what, how those things affect us. And so that's why I'm sort of like doing that. So is this going back to school? Somewhat, yeah. It's a little bit, but it's not dry and it's not lifeless. As a matter of fact, it's actually where the life is and that these, these things that Paul laid out you can imagine, and I want to just do a little bump in that. Remember, the church at Rome was about the age of the church of New Day. And, you know, we're a little bit beyond they were. So that church is immature, hasn't been going for hundreds of years, hasn't been going thousands of years. It's been going about eight to ten years they have lots of diverse opinions. They're navigating it. They're wondering what's going on. And Paul, and especially the Holy Spirit that's working in Paul, that's having him write these things, remember he's inspired of God, is going, wait, you guys need this as an anchor. You guys need to understand this because it will be the thing that 
that when you go through transitions, when you go through circumstances of life, this will hold you. And you have to come back to these reference points. And I think that's what that's why that testimony about your dog and coming back home is really important. That's what the book of Romans and what I've learned in the past 10 years, that's what it's done for me. I still read a lot of scriptures. I can tell you probably at least, so I'm not being evangelical in this and exaggerating, at least two to four times a month, I end up navigating my way back to Romans. That's how much of a foundation it is. It, it is that sure place, and this is Paul's, you know, Paul was such a gift to us from God. This is Paul unpacking, and he used Paul to tell us and explain what the revelation of Christ is and what it does for us. And it keeps you from bumping, you know. It's like, um, have you ever felt like life was one of those old uh, arcade games with the mechanic, do they even play them anymore? With the mechanical, you know, you shoot the ball up in there, you can remember, I can remember uh, being, getting the stool out at the Janesville Tavern when I was a little boy. And my wages, I started working there when I was 11 years old, and so this was church for me on Sunday mornings, is I would sweep out all the sawdust from underneath the booths because they would have dances on there on Saturday night. Do you know what kind of dances I'm talking about? Do you know the, the polka stuff where they dance like this and they go in circles around? It's really funny to watch them. They have this, you know. <laughs> no, actually I don't. I thought it was disgusting when I was, especially when I was a teenager and my parents making fools of themselves by going over to the Riviera Ballroom and dancing. All in, they all go in a circle. By the way, they, they dance with each other, but they end up doing a circle going around. So the drunk farmers would drop money as they got more drunk and danced more, and they would pull them running out, you know. And my wages, because they couldn't get under there with a broom, I'd use a little hand broom, and I'd get underneath the booths, and I'd sweep up all the sawdust, and then I would find dimes, quarters, and my dad let me keep whatever I found, including a $20 bill one time. That was rare on his part to let me have that. So, to fast forward. Then I would use the money to get the stool out and prop myself up so that I could play those, you know, video games. But it was so much like life. You know, you see, how hard do I want to, you know, not video, pinball. There we go. Can't even remember it. And you pull it back, you're going to decide how hard you were going to, were you going to shoot it real hard and let it go, and it hit all the bumpers. Ka-ging, 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 ka-ging. And your job was to run the flippers. Remember that? Push the button real hard. And the machine always won. Because you lost your marbles. And then you had to have wee fairy dust sprinkled over it. So you could find your marbles. Go back to Neverland. <laughs> so much of our life is like it's just you know, you know, and then it, it progresses on, and you know, and then you get older and you become a teenager and you listen to Pinball Wizard, you know, and uh, 
God never meant for you to navigate life like it's a pinball game. It can seem like it at times. It's not your job to push the buttons to make the flippers go. It's not your job. Your job is to trust God. Trust Him. Just trust Him completely. And that's why we're given this in Romans. This allows us to put down the firm foundation of trust in God. This is the stuff that Paul wrote that says, this doesn't waver. God is the constant in this, and he wants to be the constant in our life. And what we've done, the true enemy of our faith is actually self-reliance. You've got to be the one. You're going to do this. And we do that through the boundaries of things like knowing right and wrong. We do it with boundaries of morality. We do it with boundaries of the law, the word of God. We do it with those things and we move into, instead of understanding what they are there for, it moves us towards this. And this is what the, the law, the law always requires you to be self-reliant. It actually teaches us to do that. And, well, the law is wonderful. It, yes, it absolutely is. The law is perfect. You're not. But there's something when we read law that moves us towards, I must then do this to be okay. And it moves us into such a self-reliance. So, Paul writes here in the first part of Romans, in, 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 in four, and we're just going to read the first four verses of this. What then shall we say, and there's an introduction, we did that last week, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, accounted to him as righteousness, or for righteousness. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Here's what happens. When we start trying to make ourselves align with how God views us, we move into this self-reliant issue that moves us towards independence. I must to, uh, I've got to get this right. There's a whole lot of subtleties that happen inside of us. Um, our self-talk. Everybody has self-talk. Our self-subsistence, I have to make a way for myself. Our self-sufficiency, our self-support. Um, most, and, and I think, I, you know, and much, let's put it that way, the must and the moch of Christianity has taught us that 
the enemy that we have is our fleshly desires. That is a pro- how many of you have been taught that? Primary desire, you know, is, is, oh, I know me, I'm wretched, and I will run. I'm the dog that will return back to the, and, and so we're taught, and, and we're taught that Satan is, and that sin itself And that the thing that opens the door to all of these is when you're not responding correctly, think about pushing the paddles on the arcade game, on the pinball game, (sighs) or a better term would, you're not being obedient, and really what you're meaning is you're not being compliant with uh, with what the law set forth. And especially, we get most of that from the Mosaic Covenant. Thou shalt not. And we do that in that the morality standards for what is right or wrong by current beliefs, doctrines, and traditions, that all comes to bear within us, and then that all gets fueled, like an arcade game, with the experiences and circumstances of life that we go through. Instead of looking at what Paul is writing here and saying, God did this for you, and he has justified you, and he did it when you were ungodly. And only God made you godly. And he did that when you were off your game completely. Matter of fact, how, how many of you got saved in a crisis? It's a, quite an, unless you were a child, it's a very normal pattern. Uh, when children get saved, it's usually from Christian parents who are leading them. They understand, they want the love of God, and and they embrace that easily. How many of you were saved as children? That that was your normal experience. Matter of fact, you probably didn't have a cathartic event in your life that brought you into the kingdom. If you got saved as an adult, you had a crisis of some sort that created this catharsis that moved you towards the understanding that you needed a savior. Both are valid. Both are a type of, if you will, pinball game. Um, But it is such a relief to know this, that God didn't use how off you were on your game or how on you were on your game as the deciding factor of how he was going to justify you. We have a tendency to remove God out of the equation of our salvation. Isn't that strange? He's the author. We have a tendency in our salvation, especially if you went through a crisis thing, thinking that it was your understanding that brought you to the place that you knew that you needed God. You, you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a tricksy here. When actually salvation for every person, and this includes pre-cross going clear back to the beginning, salvation was God's idea. That's what Paul's trying to get across here. This wasn't later 
when the law came in. This was pre-law stuff, and God justified the ungodly. Adam and Eve were justified by God. And you go through, you have to go through whatever historical account you want or whatever thing. All those people before were all saved by faith. In Christ, there wasn't a separate plan of salvation. Oh, there's a point in history. All you guys that went before, you know, you're held in a really bad place and then God's going to magically. No, it was always in faith in God. Always. God, God's the only plan of salvation for human beings and you didn't come up with it and you didn't generate it. It came from him. And so the idea of that it has to be self-reliant, that I have to do this moving towards, you didn't move towards God. God moved towards you. God came after you. You didn't go after God. I started studying a minute. God came after you. It was his plan, his understanding. Why is that important? Because it puts a surety of home in our hearts. And it's why it's the anchor. So I don't move into, if there's one thing I wish I could take out of my life, it's my self-reliant attitude. Uh, did you grow up with a strong work ethic as a child? Made you do it. That has wonderful things to it, and that has some very sneaky things to it. I have to make it happen. I have to bring it in. I have to do this. I have to do that. And it does this, you know, in a day and age where it's hard to find responsible adults, uh, there's got to be a different approach than, than what we're using right now. And it's found right here. Justification and the resulting righteousness that comes with it can only be received. It is impossible to earn it. That's what Paul's saying here. We can never be righteous through our own efforts. Only God can bestow it. And the only way it could be, be bestowed is through God's generous gift. Guess what of? Come on, what do I preach here? Grace. And his heroic death and resurrection, now here's, here's the key term, which you get credit for. You get the credit for what God did, not what you did. You can't earn any credit for what you do. You get the credit by saying, okay, yes. And you get it credited to your account. That's the good news of Romans 4. And then Paul takes this. This is so, uh, this was so the Holy Spirit. Because he takes the life of Abraham. Now remember the church at Rome filled with Hebrew believers, non-Hebrew believers, Jews, Gentiles. It's got both and they're a mix. And and if you can imagine the church, it's got the innies and outies. Well, we were here first. 
we understood this first. You weren't doing it any better than, and then we're trying to get them to do it the way we had done it. Uh, you Gentiles need to, well, you Jews, you need to, and that doesn't, you know, and you got these arguments. So Paul's sending this to them and going, no, 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 no. Uh, let me give you a snapshot of Abraham's life. And so he tells you in this, I mean, this is such an incredible thing. The story of Abraham is mind-boggling. And it is the truest picture of the precursor to the second covenant coming. We have a tendency through tradition and stuff to look at the Mosaic covenant and ignore the Abrahamic. We don't, we don't hear that. God made a covenant with Abraham. All, all, and it was basically with this, come and follow me. Um, it's, uh, it's such a picture because it, it's supposed to show us that no one ever gets the promises of God through self-effort as he gives a snapshot of Abraham's life. Um, and uh, in many ways, the story of Abraham sticks in our craw. It sticks in our, you know what that means? Sticks in your like, oh, it's stuck right here. Um, and, then we, and then we give attributes to Abraham that he really didn't ever exhibit because he was completely immature. And we start talking about and showing, I was taught how Abraham learned to obey God. Were you taught that? Abraham learned to trust God. Not his self-reliance to obey, because he couldn't do it. He couldn't make it happen. So, snapshot. There's a little bit background for Abraham's life. There's only eight accounts of God speaking to Abraham who lived to be 175 years old. Now, for all of us wonderful charismatics, can you imagine serving the Lord for 175 years and you only get eight times you get to talk, to have interaction with him? And he was called <laughs> the friend of God. I mean, it's pretty stunning when you think about it. If I told you, yeah, uh, let's see, how old are you? You're 14? Okay, you're going to hear God again in about 40 years. Now serve him with gladness. That's what Abraham said. All righty. Uh, there's only five times that we know of, now he may have had more interactions. These are snapshots. There's only five times out of the eight that Abraham actually spoke back to the Lord. And, but in those five times, we get to find out about intimacy with God and trusting God and taking God at his word and believing God. It's such, when you say Abraham, you should say grace. It's such a snapshot of grace and how to learn to not be self-reliant. 
So first conversation, we get, we get the snapshot of Abraham's first conversation with God reveals his struggles with belief and his own selfishness and all that. Because the Lord shows up and invites him into this thing. He says, Abraham, uh, I'm going to invite you into something and, and I'm going to, I'm just going to bless you beyond what you could imagine. And your inheritance will be this. Um, I will be your exceedingly great reward. Wouldn't you like God to, in fact, you did. You've received God as your exceedingly great reward. You know what his response was? Seeing that, what will you give me? That's the mic drop. I want to give you myself. Well, yeah, but what are you going to give me? There's this thing in which Abraham has to get the stuff that makes him be okay, and he's not really hearing God clearly. The second conversation happens a couple chapters later, and it comes uh, uh, actually by Abraham trying to make God's promises come about uh, his own way his own self-reliance. It's when he did Ishmael. And uh, went, oh, God's going to give me an heir and I'm going to become the father of nations. And it ain't happening because I'm past my prime and so's my wife. She can't have babies and I'm as good as dead. He's 90-some years old. Maybe there's still a little gas in the tank. Uh, Hagar. And it, it's, he tries to move into that same, you know, and so is this a picture of Abraham being disobedient? No, it's not. It's a picture of you and I, of trying to make God's stuff happen in our life our own way to get it to happen and God doesn't get wigged out it's never accounted against him matter of fact God's so merciful and kind he blesses him because Abraham asked him to oh that you would bless God's going I don't think you want me to do that please God please even if this isn't the way I will bow the knee. I will do it right this next time. I will give you everything, but blessed. God blesses him. We still have fights today because of it. Isn't it amazing? But he gives him the promise again. Third conversation, Genesis 18. Uh, all of a sudden, you get the hint of the God stuff that's working in Abraham's life. Really changes his way, and uh, his, his his desire is really to commune with God, and uh, and to take Him at His word, and and to see the promise come. The fourth conversation happens uh, later in Genesis 18, and that's where God really begins to speak to him about what His plans are, and we all know that that's Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, Abraham intercedes. 
And the fifth encounter is, it's the pinball machine. He's got the promise. And then God says, no, give it up. And don't touch the flippers. Do not touch the button. Okay. Pulls back the little spring-loaded thing. Boom. Shoots the ball up at the top of the thing. It starts going like this. And you know it's going to fall through. And instead, God comes through at the end. And says, oh, you're listening to me. That's all God ever wanted from any of us. Listen to me. Listen to the way I've planned it. You see him go from selfishness to pride and doubting to to, uh, really right desires, uh, a willingness and a compassion for others, and at the end, an unselfish delight to do God's will. That's where God wants all of us, and you get it by saying yes to God, not by obeying God, by trusting God. Obedience will always follow trust. Trust doesn't always follow obedience because you've done it out of your own self-reliance. We have a tendency to, to misalign this. God justifies the ungodly through what he does, not what they do. Here's where the self-reliant thing gets a hold of us. And I want you to see this this morning. We'll close with this. Faith is not a debit card. How many of you have a debit card in your pocket this morning? Would you just click back in the little thing, reader back there and do your thing? No, I'm just kidding. Listen, when we stay in self-reliance, you will look at your faith as a debit card. Strike it through the little machine and then it takes money out of your account. God filled it, but and every sin you commit, everything you do wrong, comes out of your account, right? Wrong. God credits your account with righteousness and you are never debited. Now your sins can wreak a lot of havoc. Your sins can hurt you and hurt other people. But it will never take away the justification that God gave to you through him. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, but I'm less of it. Stop it. You, how, how could God deny who he is in your life? And so I've watched myself and other believers for years seeing my relationship with God as this, as this yes, he loves me, but if I don't get this, if I don't do this right, then... Uh, My account got credited with Jesus, but uh, if I mess up, it's diminished. 
The argument against this teaching is, well, if you don't tell people that God will be upset with them, if they do something wrong, then they'll do whatever they want. Right? Is that, that's what goes through my mind. But I'm not new to this. Uh, years I spent the what ifs and yeah buts. And I worked really hard with self-reliance. What I got wrong was this. Obedience is not the means of relationship to salvation in God. And it's not the means to have an ongoing relationship with God. Obedience is a result of my relationship to God. Not the means to get it. That's what I mean by a debit card. Listen, you can't take this away from you. If you could, you're more powerful than God. If sin could take it away from you, that makes sin more powerful. You just have to think through this logic. It's called the logic of the spirit. If my sin could take away my relationship with God, you're sunk. Become self-reliant tomorrow morning and you start doing it as hard as you can. So then how do we change and grow? Trust. Trust in the promise of what God did in your life. And here's what trust will always lead to. Obedience. And we've been taught the reverse. And if you're going to repent over anything, repent over that. Obedience will never lead you to trust. Obedience will lead you to self-reliance. But trust will always lead you to obedience. Is obedience still the issue? The obedience of Christ? Yes. And I, in faith, lean into that obedience. We'll look more at this because I, I can see perplexed looks on some of your faces. We'll look at it more next week. I wish you could, wish we all had the time just to be here for an hour. Because we have so segmented this and picked this apart. Because uh, what he uses next is the story of David about how the issue of the debit card and the credit card. And that if it was marked against you, you have no hope. But it's not marked against you, so what do you have? Hope. That's what Abraham has said. Abraham hoped beyond hope. And he took God at his word. And we'll, we'll look at it next week. And I, I wish we had a... This is a frustration of being a teacher. I wish I had, could give you a break and you would all come back here in 15 minutes and we would finish the second part. So come back next week. And I know circumstances of life, but try and be here so that you can get the full connection of this. Otherwise, when you only hear part of it, you walk away with part of it. That's why you have to hang with Romans. That's why I keep saying keep reading it this week because it, it gets in you and, and gets that that not undone so you can receive it so let me pray for you and for me God I pray that the revelation of justification coming through what you did would be an anchor to our waywardness this week that when our thoughts stray away from trust in you and what you've accomplished 
that you would bring us back to that place where you started this morning. You're our true home. You're our true north. Lord, there's a sign that says, don't go beyond the driveway. And everything in that sign makes me want to run across the driveway and go in the neighbor's yard. I pray for us that this would become such an anchor. And I pray that we would start taking this and that you would move us into positions this week to spoon feed it to others, even if we don't completely get it. That you would set up circumstances that we could be interjected into somebody else's pinball game. And instead of being another bumper for them to run into, we would be the place where they can get excused from that awful game. And that you would help them Lord, teach us to share. I pray for, not in a weird guilt trip way and not in a responsibility way, but I just pray right now for each of our hearts that we would so have interactions this week that it would be inescapable. That you would cause us to run into somebody where we have to explain what we don't understand. And that we can share with other people the good news that you're our righteousness, you're our peace, you're our justification, you're our help, you're everything. You're everything. And help us. In Jesus' name, would you stand? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.